Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Shares for beginners. I do think there's classes of stocks which over time will become less attractive as well. I mean, we're talking about the here and now, but as fund managers, we've also got to look out about what happens over the next year, the next two years, the next three years. So if we start to think about, well, what are the consumer discretionary stocks that as inflation starts to bite and the food prices go up and the petrol goes up and the mortgage rates go up and the rent goes up, what are the things that we're going to be spending less on? G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Today I'm joined by Simon Shields, Portfolio Manager and Co-Founder of Monash Investors. G'day Simon. Hi Phil. Let's go a bit back into history. When did you start Monash and why the name? We started back in 2012. I've been working for UBS as the head of Australian equity, so investing for clients. It was quite a large fund, over $6 billion in funds under management. And that was a value approach. And we did pretty well. In fact, I'd started there just as the GFC was hitting. So value managers did very well. And we were right at the top of the performance tables for a few years. Prior to that, I'd been at Colonial First State in the heydays of growth, which was terrific as well. I started there in 98 as a fund manager and eventually became head of equities. It was known as growth then in those days, wasn't it? Was. It? it was. very because much Because of the dot-com era, I guess. Yes. And yeah. we, we called it GDP Plus was our specific thing that we were looking for in stocks. We got bought over by the Commonwealth Bank and we went from being a boutique to more of a bankized sort of situation and that led ultimately to a lot of people leaving and I was probably the last one to go as head of Australian equities and I went to UBS. So after having done growth and having done value, I was literally looking for the next thing and, and so um, I looked for more of an absolute approach to investing in the share market rather than a a relative approach and um, thought long and hard about my philosophy. Up until that point, I'd be doing other people's philosophy. I'd been effectively a gun for hire, whatever fund manager I was working at to follow their approach. But, you know, Shane Fitzgerald and I, we came up with our own approach that was able to short as well as go long and looked at stocks on the individual merits rather than relative to peers all the time. And uh, off we went. So what does that actually mean, looking at them on their own merits rather than in relation to their, their peers? Is that well, a particular style of investing, Well, look, isn't? the way the industry is developed is what we call long-only benchmark aware. So mm-hmm. when a fund manager wants to say they've been doing well or poorly, they look at how they've gone versus the index. And more specifically, they look how they've gone if they're a growth manager versus the other growth managers, because at time, growth is going to be doing better or worse relative to the index. Or if they're a value manager, how they've gone versus the other value managers. And as stock pickers, when you've got a particular style, you're looking at the stocks in an index and you're going, hmm, do I want to be a little bit overweight this stock or a little bit underweight this stock? And you end up having a portfolio that looks very much like the index. It's just sort of weighted a little bit more in one direction than the other. And as they say, the margins for error are pretty small, but you make a lot of bets. And if you can be right 55 or 60% of the time, then you look like you're outperforming the index over time. Mm. And so that means you're condemning yourself to a portfolio that goes up and down with the index and just adds a little bit either way, depending on whether your style is being favoured at a point in time and depending on whether you're doing a good job. 
at a point in time. I wanted something that was really more about the companies we were investing in, not being interested in being in a stock that was on a hiding to nothing, even though it was a bit better than the other stocks that were similar to it. Our portfolio never looks anything like the index. We pick the sectors and the stocks that we want to invest in, and we don't worry about investing in other things. So you've experienced widely differing approaches to investing, like you say, growth and uh, value and DCF as well, Mm. discounted cash flow. Has this made you more or less agnostic in your own investing style? It's, oh, I suppose it's brought me to the realisation that there is actually not that much difference between growth and value. It really depends on how far you're prepared to look out. Everybody wants the big payoff. That's value. It's a question of how far you're prepared to look out. Historically, value people looked behind them and then started to look about a year in front, and that's value. The growth people looked further out than that. We take the approach that we want to look out over the whole cycle of a business and bring that to the price that we think the stock should be trading at today. And if we can see that there's a big gap between the current share price and the price that we think the stock should be trading at today, then that's the stock we want to own. Mm. And just to date stamp this, we're recording on March 7th, 2022. I know that you're feeling very passionate about a sea change that we're going through at the moment and uh, that the whole of the economy and financial markets are going to be affected. Tell us about that. I think we're living through quite an extraordinary time as investors at the moment. You know, market crashes come along from time to time. About every seven years, we've had the, obviously, we had the tech wreck in 2000. We had the GFC in 2007. It was a really big one as a financial crisis. Market drifted along for a while after that. And now our next big one we've had in 2020 with the COVID, right? What we're having now is not a crash with what's going on in Ukraine, but there is something that's really, really different happening now than what had happened in the past maybe 10 or 20 years. For the past 10 or 20 years, we've been in a pretty deflationary environment. Global trade's been good. Economies are becoming more flexible. There's been no supply issues. Inflation's been trending down. Interest rates have been trending down. The big surprise is that over the last several months, that's changed. It's been changing for a couple of reasons. When COVID hit, everybody thought that the supply chain bottlenecks were going to be transitory. Turns out two years later, they're not transitory. (laughs) We're still trying to work through them. I don't think you can call them transitory anymore. That frightened the Fed so much that around November, December, they started to get very aggressive saying, look, we're going to start to put up interest rates. Now, we're not happy with a 7% inflation rate in the US, even if it's an element of transitoriness around it. That was the first surprise, I suppose, in the real world about inflation. But since then, there's been a couple of other big surprises. The fact that the oil price, even prior to what was going on in Ukraine, the oil price had really started to pick up. And typically what happens with the oil price is you get a price signal because the price goes up and then you get a supply response and the price comes back down. That certainly happened around 2007. Price came down, the price sort of settled at around between $50 and $90 over the next 10 years or so after that. Well, COVID, of course, killed demand, price fell. But now the price has gone up, and it's said even before Ukraine, price had gone up to $90. And the price of oil feeds into not just the transport costs, but it feeds into the cost of everything, because to mine, you need to use oil, petrol, diesel, whatever. And Also, to make food, you actually have got to, you know, have the tractors, you've got to transport the food. And so we see huge increases in food prices that feeds into inflation as well when oil price goes up and commodity prices go up and everything starts to go up and then wages go up. And and so 
that was the other shock because up until very, very recently, we haven't been really getting any sort of response because people just aren't interested in investing at all. Even the companies aren't interested in investing at all. So now that we then get the Ukraine coming and we have a bit of an oil crisis, at the same time, you know, we've got fear that we haven't had before and uncertainty. And so the market doesn't just price earnings and lose discount rates to bring back. It also prices fear. And the more, the more fear you have, the higher the uncertainty, the lower prices. And so, you know, high interest rates, high discount rates, high fear, high uncertainty, prices fall. And that just doesn't affect the whole of the share market in terms of its price level. It also affects what happens inside the share market. And so growth derates much more from value. There's a flight to quality, there's a flight to certainty. People aren't prepared to look out as far as they were before. They're looking closer to home. These things don't happen for a month or two and then we forget about it and it all goes back to normal. You know, we're coming out of like 20 years of deflation. I'm not saying there's 20 years of inflation ahead of us by any means, but we're going through a period of inflation now, a period of rising rates, a period of less discretionary spending because if your petrol's going up, if your food's going up, you know, if your rent's going up, your mortgage payments are going up, if the prices of other goods are going up because the input costs are going up, then you have less money left over. And even if your wage is going to be, you still have less money left over on the things you'd like to spend discretionary income on. Therefore, you have less money to spend on these other more peripheral things. And that really affects the prices of those companies on, on the share market. So, Like I said, it's just fascinating. The last three or four months, it's almost like it's come out of nowhere. You mentioned fear in that previous answer. And the S&P 500 at the moment is in correction territory, which is 10%. But it's full of bears. There's so many stocks on the New York Stock Exchange that are in bear territory. They've gone down along. Mm. Is this what you're talking about in the the rolling over from the growth story? Well, certainly. So you could already see that in November, December in the tech stocks. So many of the tech stocks had fallen off so precipitously. And it was easy to look at that and go, oh, they've had a bit of a correction, but, you know, it's going to be okay from here on in. But you can see going through January, going through February, they've continued to fall. Now, of course, what's happened in Ukraine has added extra impetus to that. But... You know, that was really before we had this more medium term outlook that was negative. So I don't see any quick bounce from these stocks by any means. And it's easy to see them drifting lower over time. What the market does is it prices return and it prices risk. And what we're seeing is a heightened level of risk. Risk is uncertainty, fear, certainly. And when that happens, sensibly, prices come backwards. And that's what we're seeing. Now, it affects some stocks more than others. Mm. So, you know, if you're in a consumer staple stock, like a supermarket, it affects it much less. Then if you're in a stock that's looking to making losses at the moment, but it's having, you know, great growth in its revenue and all cash flows being reinvested in the business, but, you know, the promised land will be in four or five years time. Well, people don't want to look out that far anymore. Mm. (laughs) So how can investors respond to these current conditions? Okay. So there's always people who are bearish at times. It's a bit like economists that have predicted seven of the last two recessions, as the joke goes. Mm-hmm. You know, and there are always people that are always bullish at times. And I'm somebody who tends to be more bullish than bearish. I think if you look back at the progress in developed world over the last 50, 60, 70 years, it's been easy to be bearish. But over time, you know, we're all getting wealthier. Our standard of living is rising and, and the share market's go up. But they do crash every seven years and they have corrections every so often. So I'm a pretty optimistic person about the outlook for us and the world and everybody in it, right? But I do think we're at one of those times now 
where the market's going to be having a bit of a pause. It's going to be standing still for a while. It always goes up and down. It's going to keep going up and down. But, you know, we've had a fantastic run over the last several years, even if you look through the period before COVID and, and beyond COVID, it's just been terrific. I do think now it's different with rising rates and also with lower discretionary spending to come because of inflation. Mm. So how should investors respond? Oh, okay, yes. So um, I think that means that there is a real case to be more defensive in your portfolio Mm -hmm. than what you've been previously. I do think that as good as the tech stocks may be, you know, when you've got a stock that's on a very high PE on the basis that it's got great growth over the next five to seven, eight, nine years, it's not the time to be Uh, aggressively owning those stocks. You might think the business is too good not to hold some of, and that's fine. But, you know, I think that it's probably the time when you're going to be better off holding the more defensive stocks in your portfolios. As I said, the consumer staples, perhaps the big financials in Australia. On the other hand, I do think there's classes of stocks which over time will become less attractive as well. I mean, we're talking about the here and now, but as fund managers, we've also got to look out about what happens over the next year, the next two years, the next three years. So if we start to think about, well, what are the consumer discretionary stocks that as inflation starts to bite and the food prices go up and the petrol goes up and the mortgage rates go up and the rent goes up, what are the things that we're going to be spending less on over time? So one of the things we're going to be spending less on in the near term, I think, is furniture, because when COVID hit, huge increase in sales in furniture because everybody is at home. Well, people don't need a lot of new furniture and they want to keep spending on their Uber Eats and going out to to whatever, have been stuck at home for a long time and maybe a bit of travel. I think the furniture is going to go on the back burner Mm. for a while. That's one thing I think in the medium term. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. So let's have a look at the recent reporting season. Hmm. What are some things that you found of interest out of that? It was quite an interesting reporting season from a couple of points of view. Normally, companies tend to surprise positively on average because the analysts like to be a little bit conservative. The companies themselves like to be a little bit conservative in guiding so that they can beat. But from a point of view of what the results were, it was less of a beat this time than what it normally is. And that sort of points to a bit of a slowing growth as well. We did have that Omicron right at the right at the end. <laughs> Let's um, not forget it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that did cause a dampener for yeah. a few stocks as well. Um, in particular, though, it was quite interesting to see that when stocks surprised positively, they really didn't go up much at all. When stocks surprised negatively, they really got hammered. So I've just been doing an assessment of the stocks in my portfolio for reporting season. And what we found was that the stocks that surprised positively, on average, only went up by 2% over the month. But the stocks that missed went down by 13% wow. over the month. That's so that huge. was a big yeah. difference. Mm. You know? And some stocks, of course, it depends on where they were. So in a situation as things were getting worse, and I talked about maybe the financials, the big banks are a good place to be, Westpac surprised, and it ended up going up 12% for the month. Now, who would have thought a bank would go up 12% of the, you know, the years and years of bank bashing, the margins coming down, they're still struggling a little bit from a margin point of view, rising interest rate environment, surely that can't be positive for the banks either. But 
went up 12%. So that was, I think, it was a very interesting reporting season in that it was very different to the sort of reporting seasons we've had for the last few years, even excluding the whole COVID experience. Are there any specific stocks that you wanted to talk about that um, have an interesting story about uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. the results? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so when we look at the stocks in our portfolio that are quite large positions, we had some quite interesting returns and we had some quite interesting responses from the market, right? So a stock that did very well in terms of its result was a stock called John's Ling. Now, it's not a stock that's widely known about, but it's actually developed into quite a large company. And what they do is they work for insurance companies and they go and repair buildings after they've been damaged. And so they've got sort of quite a constant baseload of work, plus every so often there's a surge in extra work. They also have gone into strata and do building management for stratas and, and so forth. And it's, it's just a fantastic business that's been going very quickly. Now, it had a cracking result. I think the earnings upgrades were like 10, 12%. And over the month, the stock price didn't, didn't move, essentially. So that was a very interesting experience for us. <laughs> But you know, you, like, you were waiting for the applause to happen. Correct, I guess. <laughs> and we get the applause. And of course, we do our jobs as investment professionals by trying to pick businesses that are cracking businesses. But we mm. also try to buy them at a price we think where they're being underappreciated by the market. Yeah. And it turned out that well, the market wasn't underappreciating it. It came out with a cracking result, and the market didn't respond. You know, yeah. it was sort of telling us that oh, it was it was sort of expected. Now we know it wasn't expected because it wasn't in the analyst forecast to beat them. But the market was sort of telling us, well, we're not that interested in this company at the moment. A company on the other side, actually, where it went down quite a lot, even though, you know, the result was sort of okay, was Superloop. So Superloop is in that broadband, you know, building out a broadband network. The more traffic you can put through your network, the more capacity utilization you get through it. So you're really leveraging that asset and you get some really good returns. Well, it came out with a very good good result and the share price fell about 19%, <laughs> you know? And... Mm. Again, it's telling us that these, you know, if you think about all these telco assets that had been highly prized by private equity and they'd been doing takeovers of each other, like Unity Wireless and Opticom and all that sort of stuff, well, again, the market's now going ho-hum. <laughs> so, so they were quite interesting results that we saw. And as I said, it's all part of the, the signal that we're getting from the market that there's a sea change going on. Yeah. So Monash has... 75 million funds under management and basically a portfolio of 35 long short stocks. That's right. We we have for mainly long. Mainly long. We always have only few short stocks. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but we can look at an investment and go, "Gee, this investment's fantastic. It's going to double, it's going to triple, it's going to quadruple." You can't do that with a short. It can only <laughs> go down 100%. But it's very, very hard to find a stock that's going to go bankrupt. I mean, the most we can really ask for is a 30 or 40% decline in the, in the share price. And to get exposure to that, you're exposing yourself to unlimited risk. Because, of because course, if it the, keeps on going up. Going up you, you, yeah. you know, it, just, it just keeps going it up. It you know. becomes a 10-bagger. <laughs> correct. Yeah. Whereas if a stock you own goes down, well, it can only go down to zero. You can yeah. only lose money invested in it, right? So... You know, we tend to only have two or three or five shorts at any one time, and we also have a smaller weight in each short than what we would do in a long investment in the mm. portfolio. So, you know, of our positions in the portfolio at the moment, we've only got two or three shorts in there. And you're a very active manager. You don't sort of sit on stocks for a long time. That's right. I think Cameron said hyperactive manager. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, 
Turnover is an outcome. It's not something that we're looking to do just because we want to have a high turnover portfolio. But what we do is we, we value every stock that we invest in or short. And we say, this is what we think the stock should be trading at today. And as the price moves in that direction, we will trim our holdings and we will exit the stock when it gets to the price that we think it should be at. And so if it gets to that price quickly, well, of course, you know, there's a lot of transactions because we're out of the stock quickly. Likewise, if we found that we've made a mistake in some way, our earnings forecasts are wrong or the investment thesis that we have around the company is wrong, we're going to be cutting or exiting from the position and that creates turnover in the portfolio as well. So on average, we've had about 140% per annum turnover mm. in the portfolio. And um, are, there, are there specific triggers or do you have a, a technical yeah. trigger? Or do you yeah, so, a... so we do have some early warning triggers, yeah. right? So, I mean, we've talked about triggers where as you approach the share price, you trim yeah. it and so forth, fine. But we have some triggers that we call signposts. And when we look at the near-term earning of stocks, there are signposts that we look for to make sure that we're happy that everything's on track. So are they rolling out new stores? Well, how many new stores is it? Are they getting a, a good conversion from their marketing spend? Well, what is that conversion, right? So we actually put figures in for these things. And if they miss these numbers, and there's normally two or three per stock, we take that as an early warning trigger and we cut the stock by a third. Now, that's not our only early warning trigger. We have a couple of others. So if the company has an unexpected expected downgrade, that's treated as an early warning trigger. We cut by a third. And if it has a spike in short interest, because the stock exchange provides information on the level of shorts in companies, there's a spike in short interest, then we'll cut it by a third as well. And finally, if it gets two early warning triggers close to each other, we're out of the stock completely. So two strikes and you're out. And uh, in terms of buying a company, what's the kind of the investment funnel look like for you? Okay, so... Early on, I always used to describe what we do as hunt and peck, right? Mm -hmm. We're not looking at every stock in every sector across all of the market. We're trying to think about where we can best spend our time to get the most likely opportunities that will fit what we Is that for. kind of like a macro tailwind? Um, it's a little bit like a macro tailwind, but it's also just looking at the news. Mm -hmm. um, is there a change in government regulation? Is there something going on that we've noticed with a change in technology and you know a change in an industry that's, that's going on? Is it a company announcement that draws our attention to that particular company? Oh, maybe there's something new about this company that we didn't realise that we need to look at. So there's all these different things that could draw us to a company. And then we sort of, if you like, turn the spotlight of our analytical firepower onto the company. And we see if we can get close to a 60% payoff. That is the difference between what we think the stock should be trading at today versus where the current share price is. We can get at least 60% for the stock, which is a big ask. It's a very big ask. That's what we look for. So just to put our philosophy in perspective, I think it's probably we've probably jumped over that. Our basic investment philosophy is that most stocks are priced fairly most of the time. And by that, we mean the stocks are priced within 10 or 15% of what they're worth. You know, now there's lots of smart people looking at the stocks on the stock exchange all the time and they're trying to incorporate all the information they can get their hands on. And yeah, I think stocks are pretty well priced. I mean, there's, you know, to some extent, my revenue forecast is as good as yours and they shouldn't be too dissimilar from each other. Um, because the numbers are basically coming from the company anyway, aren't they? Uh, yes. Or, you know, you can sort of agree on what the industry growth rate is over the yep. next two to three years and, and so forth, right? 
But we can look back every year at the stock market and we can see that some stocks have done much, much better and some stocks have done much, much worse. And then the question is, well, could we have worked that out in advance? Now, sometimes you can't. Sometimes it's the war in Ukraine. You couldn't work out that the oil price was about to shoot up 50 bucks, for example. But other times there are things you can look at and we, we call those things recurring business situations or recurring patterns of behaviour. And given that I've been in the markets now as an analyst and a fund manager for over 30 years, and so has my colleague Shane Fitzgerald, we look back and we can see instances of similar things happening time after time. And there's enough examples of this happening at any one time that we can find a number of companies to invest in. Now, we know we're not going to be right all the time. If we can be right about our future assumptions eight out of 10 times, that's great as far as we're concerned. But what we're doing is we're using these recurring uh, situations to help us make better forecasts about what should happen to a business in the next few years and then discount that back to a price today that we think the stock should be trading at. And if the market disagrees with us about that, well, these recurring situations give us the confidence to back ourselves. And once the market agrees with us, we've done our work, we're out of the company. For someone who's looking at a company report for the first time, Mm -hmm. what for you is the most important number to look at in that report? It depends on the sort of company you're looking at. Okay. If it's a mature company that's got sort of slow but steady growth over time, then you definitely want to be looking at the earnings per share and you want to be looking at not paying too much for the earnings per share. And companies like that tend to be very well covered. And so you can look at what the analysts are forecasting out the next one or two years, get hands on stockbroker reports or whatever, and you definitely want to be in companies that have got, as I say, a bit of a moat, good growth, and you're getting a low price for those companies. On the other hand, there are other companies that are in less mature industries or industries going through disruption. And that's much more difficult as a novice investor to be able to price. And so it's almost like I don't want to begin to tell you what to look for because it's not a novice level <laughs> yeah, no, that's you know, okay. Yep, yep. Yeah. And that's something that I've heard spoke, I think it was a quote from either Buffett or Munger, is that EBITDA is just not anything that you even look at because that's where the accounting fictions come in. Is that the case? Look, the accountants have really muddied with the reports over the years. It used to be relatively easy for an analyst to look at the numbers coming out of a company and then make some their own minor adjustments to it as they saw fit to come out with a useful number. But now there's a level of complexity underlying the EBITDA calculation. The accountants have decided that they're analysts, Mm. that if they're going to report what the fair number is, lots and lots of adjustments have to be done to it. Well, they've actually to some extent, destroy the usefulness (laughs) of the raw EBITDA number now for sophisticated investors. And I think that, you know, we actually go deep into the numbers now, the accounting numbers, to actually get numbers that are useful when it comes to EBITDA. I feel with the aim of making things easier for investors, they've actually made it even harder for novice investors because that EBITDA number now is a piece of jargon. It's not easy to understand what that actually means anymore. Yeah. So as you say, with mature companies in mature industries, earnings per share is like the raw number of what the cash that uh, is being generated by the company. 
Is that well, the case? Well, no. Possibly? No, no, yeah, possibly, possibly, <laughs> yep. but no. The cash flow is certainly the number that's being generated, the cash flow per share. What I say, when it gets to mature companies, mm-hmm. you can trust that earnings per share number a lot more because, yep. you know, they're not going through these disruptive phases generally. They've got the moat. They're somewhat protected. They've got, you know, years and years behind steady growth. So you can sort of rely on that. But for, I think, you know, just... If it's not a company like that, that's why I say for novice people, you can do the easy stuff yourself, but for the harder stuff, you're better off speaking to an advisor or using an investment professional. So tell us about investing in a Monash fund. You've got, it's not an ETF, it's an ETMF. Yes, that's right. So we've got the first fund that started off as an LIC and got converted into a trust and stayed listed on the share market with a market maker. And that's why instead of being called an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, it's called an ETMF, an exchange-traded managed fund. And so we're the manager and we have a trustee, which is a perpetual. And it's just like investing in a trust that's not listed on the share market. You've got a unit price when effectively, you know, we're creating units and redeeming units as people put money in and money out. The difference between that, though, and the way you do it if it's not listed on the share market is that when you buy a unit on the share market, you're typically buying it from the market maker Mm. who's turning around and then asking us to buy it from him. And that's the way the unit's getting, getting created. The other difference is that the unit price on the share market goes up and down during the day with the portfolio. Whereas if you're buying it from a unit trust that is not listed on the share market, you're just getting the end of day price. And I believe you went from the LIC structure to this structure because of the problems with net asset values under LICs. Is that the case? Yes. Yes. That was the main reason. So our LIC had been trading at about a 15 to 20% discount for a few years. And we just weren't happy with that. We felt that that was an unsatisfactory situation for people that had chosen to invest. And so we wanted to to fix that up. We tried many things. We tried share buybacks. We tried increasing the dividend. We had very good returns. We increased the shareholder communication. None of these things worked. So in the end, the conversion was the thing that was going to work. But the conversion also fixed a couple of other problems. When there's a discount in an LIC, it also attracts investors who are not there for the investment strategy. It attracts some investors who are just there for the discount. And all they want to do is wind it up and get that discount and walk away. So we wanted legitimate shareholders and and their concerns have to be addressed. So we wanted a structure that would allow them to walk away, but also allow the investors that wanted to be part of the strategy to retain their exposure to the strategy. The third thing that we found that was very interesting as well was that unit trusts have been designed for investors, for third-party investors. They are regulated by ASIC. They have a lot of transparency. There's the way you've got to describe the fees. You've got to have the disclosure. There's the, the PDS, the product disclosure statement. You do all these things. You have a trustee. And there's a lot of protection, a lot of transparency there for investors. And LIC, on the other hand, is a company. It's not designed for financial investors but rather for people wanting to invest in businesses. The regulation is just wrong. It's more designed for companies. It's not designed for investment vehicles. And so there's a real step up in the transparency from going from an LIC to a listed unit trust. And there's also a step up in the governance. The governance in an LIC is much more out of the hands, if you like, 
of what an investor would expect. It's much more along the lines of what a, a shareholder in a business would expect. How's the performance been? The performance has been very good, actually. We started off very strongly on the listed unit trust. We have a longer track record, though, in our non-listed unit trust. The so we, managed fund. The managed fund. Yeah. We, we started almost 10 years ago now. We've done 11 to 12% per annum after fees. It's beaten both the Small Ordinaries Index and the ASX 200. It's done that with an average cash exposure of about 20%. So it's not done it because of leverage. In fact, we've been underinvested if you want to look at it like that, and yet we've beaten these two indices. So it sort of validated our, our approach on absolute valuations as opposed to relative valuations when we invest in shares. Simon Shields, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks, Phil. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. 